It was Martin Luther King Jr. who said on August 28, 1963, at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., I have a dream. And there, as he stood for civil rights, he said, among other things, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. He said, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the character of their heart, the content of their character. He said, I have a dream. And you know, he had a dream for a better America and for a better world to come. And God used him in such a mighty way. And yet we also know tragically on April 4th, 1968, he was gunned down by an assassin's bullet as he stood on the second floor balcony of a hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. What you may not know is that two months later, Elvis Presley recorded a song as a tribute to Martin Luther King Jr. That song became famous because he used it to end his 1968 comeback special that aired on television. And in the song, it's probably one of my favorite Elvis Presley songs, Elvis sang, there must be lights burning brighter somewhere. Got to be birds flying higher in a sky more blue. If I can dream of a better land where all my brothers walk hand in hand, tell me why, oh why, oh why can't my dream come true? And we know that many people have dreamed of a better world. People like Martin Luther King Jr., people like Mother Teresa, people like Gandhi, people like Abraham Lincoln, and they've had varying measures of success. And yet we still look around and we see a world of brokenness. We see a world of hate. We see a world of hurt. We see a world of racism. We see a world of sickness and disease, famine, pestilence, and war. And we too have that dream in our hearts, don't we? There's something deep down within us that says, I just I dream of a better world than this world. And we often work hard to, to make this a better world. And often we find success in that. But even on our best days, we still look around and see a broken world. But do you ever dream that dream? Do you ever dream of a world in which people love each other unconditionally? Do you dream of a world where there's no more war? Do you dream of a world where pestilence and famine and drought and disease has been banished? Do you dream of a world where dementia and Alzheimer's and cancer and HIV and so many more diseases, they're gone. Do you dream of a world in which children aren't abused and marriages don't dissolve in turmoil? Do you dream of a world where there's no more sickness, there's no more crying, there's no more sorrow, there's no more pain? Well, for the Christian, we believe that the reason humanity dreams that common dream is because we've been created in the image of God and he placed us in a world that he said before sin entered it, this is very good, and yet something's dreadfully gone wrong with our world. Sin came into our world 
because we've rebelled against God. And yet God still loves us in spite of our rebellion. And we, the Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, God has written eternity on our hearts. That we know there's something more, there's something better, there's something more lasting than what we see in our broken world. And the Christian hope is not just that when we die, we get to go and be with Jesus. Now that's awesome. And it's as good as far as that statement goes. Because the Bible does say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 So we love that. But the Christian hope is far greater and more encompassing and more beautiful than just our souls going to be with Jesus when we die. The Christian hope is that the better world we dream of and we long for will one day come. Because ours is not only the gospel of a good beginning, it's the gospel of a good ending. That for the Christian, that heaven is not a dream, it's our destiny. And what I want to do today is I want to take you to the book of Revelation chapter 21. These notes are going to be on the screen. They're also at fcbc.life if you want to open your phone and follow along there and take notes of your own. But I want to talk to you today about this message called, I Have a Dream, from Revelation chapter 21. And we're just going to limit our time today to verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. And here's what I want you to see. That the Bible pictures heaven that we're in now, that when a person dies and they get to go be with Jesus, that's not our final destination. That that is going to give way to something even better, even greater that one day, God's heaven and our earth will be reunited in a way of beauty and perfection. Sounds too good to be true, but here's the vision that the Apostle John was given by the Spirit of God. And this book is called the book of Revelation. It's the, the book of the unveiling of what God is going to do at the end of history and in eternity. And it's one revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's all about him and what he is going to accomplish. And part of this revelation that John has given is he is transported forward in time and he sees the future. And he sees what's going to be like when this ultimate final home we call heaven comes. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 1, he begins by talking about a new creation. A new creation because this earth and this universe will be renewed and transformed by God. And the curse of sin will be lifted. Revelation 21 verse 1, he writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now you need to remember in scripture that the Bible uses the word heaven in three different ways. Uh, one way that the Bible speaks of heaven is it talks about the sky above your head, where the clouds hang, where the birds soar, where the planes fly. That is often called heaven. Look up into the heavens. And then the second way that the word heaven or heavens is used in the Bible speaks of not just our atmosphere, but our universe. It's what you see when you go outside at night and you look up into the starry sky. The Bible declares that the, the, the skies, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. So the universe is also called the heavens. 
And then, of course, the third way that we most often think of the word heaven is that place where God dwells. The abode of God, outside of our space, time, universe, that that real place, but it's where God is. Well, when John writes, then, at the end of history, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, he's using the word heaven to speak of our, our sky and our universe. He's talking about God's created universe, the heavens and this earth. Because the old heavens, the old universe, the old sky above our head, And this earth will have disappeared. Why? Because it's been tainted by sin. And Jesus Christ died on the cross to redeem not just our souls, but everything that's been tainted by sin. And so John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And the word new here that John uses in the Greek is the word kainos. It doesn't mean new in time. It means new as in renewed and transformed and different It's the same word that the Apostle Paul used when he spoke of new Christians in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, when he says, in Christ you are a new creation. It's still you, but you've been radically transformed. Same word, kainos, new creation for a Christian, new heavens and new earth, that God's going to renew this universe. It's the vision that Isaiah the prophet saw in Isaiah chapter 65. It's the same vision that the apostle Peter had in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 13. That God's going to wipe away everything that's been tainted by sin and he's going to renew. And this is where so much misunderstanding comes in the minds of people about heaven. When we think about heaven in its ultimate state, we often think of some nebulous existence where we are disembodied spirits just kind of floating around on clouds. The only thing of substance are the harps we pluck. And that's not heaven. That's not the picture of the final home of the redeemed of God. Heaven is a real place for real people in real resurrected bodies so that they can enjoy God's creation. That is what the ultimate heaven is going to be. Heaven is not a shadow land. If anything, this world is the land of shadows. Do you ever look around the world and you see glimpses of beauty in art, in science, glimpses of beauty in nature, glimpses of beauty in humanity, glimpses of beauty surrounding you? Those are the shadows. Those are the little foretaste of what God's going to do one day. Everything that is beautiful and enjoyable and exciting and vibrant about this world will be renewed by God's grace and we will enjoy it forevermore. In fact, this world's the shadow. The real is yet to come. The ultimate reality is yet to come. As one person said, with God, matter matters. God's not going to abandon his creation. He's going to redeem it. That means he not only saves your soul When he forgives you of your sin, one day he's going to redeem your body and transform it and change it. Well, you will never be sick. You'll never grow old. You will never die. And he's going to transform even the created universe that he has given. Sin, Satan, suffering, and sorrow will not have the last word over God's good creation. God and our Savior will have the last word. Saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then he says something interesting, and the sea was no more. Whenever I read that, I'm going, whoa, wait a minute. I don't think 
think I understand that. What does it mean the sea will be no more? Are we going to get to that ultimate heaven one day and then say, you know, this would be awesome if it had a beach? Um, you know, I love the beach, and it's, there's no beach, and so heaven is just not quite what I was hoping for. Well, I don't think whatever this means, it will make heaven any less blissful for those of us who love the ocean, who love the beach, who love the sound of the crashing waves. But remember, in the Old Testament for the Jewish people, and even in the book of Revelation, the sea symbolized evil and danger and destruction and death. And John says, none of that will be in the new heaven and new earth. And remember where John the Apostle is when he's writing this revelation. He has been banished by Roman Emperor Domitian to an island called Patmos. And there he is separated from his family, separated from his friends, separated from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone he loves. And as he's sitting on this, this island, this prison island, he gets a glimpse of the future that there will be nothing that will separate us again from our loved ones or from God himself. So whatever it means, there is no more sea. It certainly means that there's no more separation. Do you think of someone right now that you're separated from here on this earth? I don't mean they're in heaven. I just mean they're somewhere else than right here by your side. And you miss them. But for those of you who have lost loved ones who are in heaven, you know that missing someone who's still alive somewhere else pales in comparison to missing someone who has passed away. You miss them like you miss no one else. And John says, the day's coming. There's no more separation. There's no more sea in this good creation that God is going to make. So whenever you think of heaven, don't think, I'm not sure if I'm excited about going. I just don't know. It seems boring. It doesn't seem exciting to me. What are we going to do? That's why Dr. John MacArthur teases people who sometimes pray like this. Lord, I want to go to heaven, but don't take me to heaven yet because I haven't been to Hawaii. He says, if you understand what God is going to do ultimately with the new creation, you'll recognize that you may not see everything or experience everything down here during this lifetime that you want to, but when you get to heaven, you will have all eternity to enjoy God's good creation. He speaks also, in verse 2, of a new city. John only speaks of a new creation, but a new city. Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Here again, this picture of heaven is not about people going up to heaven. It's a picture of heaven coming down to earth. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, Coming down out of heaven from God. It's the city of God. Prepared by God. And I don't know about you, but when I think about heaven, and I think about paradise, I don't often think about a city. You know, when I want to escape, and I want to just get a little taste of, a little foretaste of glory divine, I want to get out of the city, right? I want to get away from the hustle and bustle of city life. I want to, I want to throw a line out on a tranquil lake. I want to sit in a deer stand. I want to pull up a chair and watch the waves crash in on the beach. That, that's kind of what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking of heaven, 
and paradise and relaxing. But you need to understand something about this city. It's the new Jerusalem. It's holy. Nothing sinful, nothing tainted in this city. And it's not prepared by people. It's not a city designed and developed by men with its ensuing problems like crime and overcrowding and pollution and noisy neighbors and traffic jams. No, this is a city not prepared by men, but prepared by God himself. Maybe this is what Jesus meant when he said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. In this new city of God, representing the center of God's presence amidst his people, will be a city of vitality and activity. We don't have time this morning, but if you continue reading in the book of Revelation, you see that this city, designed and prepared by God, is perfectly proportioned for all the people of God throughout all the ages of God with room to spare. It is perfectly adorned and beautifully adorned. It'll be the most dazzling city you've ever seen. And he says it's so beautiful. It's like, it's like a bride adorned for her husband. I tell you, one of the things I love doing, I love conducting weddings. And, and one of the things I love doing whenever we, we're conducting a ceremony is when all the, 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 the bridal party has come in and they're all at their post, there's just one last person to come into the room. And it's the bride. And I love watching him as he watches her walk down that aisle, having seen her for the first time, adorned for her husband. And, you know, these menly men, you know, they'll, they'll stand there and, you know, they're, not, they're just all cutting up and carrying on back here before we come in and making jokes. And then they get here, and as soon as they, he sees her, lip will quiver, tear well up in an eye because he's never seen anyone more beautiful than his bride. And words just can't describe that. And I think what John is saying is when the holy city of God, Jerusalem, that new Jerusalem comes, our mouths are just going to be open. We're going to be amazed. Our jaw is going to drop at the beauty and the splendor of what God's been up to. Replacing the hurt and the ugliness of this world with the healing and the beauty of the next. Beautiful city. And part of what makes that city so beautiful is its community. So John not only sees a new creation and a new city, but look at verse 3. He sees a new community. Maybe a better word I should have chosen is a new communion. Because in verse 3, he writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is probably an angel speaking, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I love this because part of this new community is that we are finally and ultimately and perfectly at one with one another as the family of God, actually as the bride of Christ. The Bible pictures the church as the bride of Christ. 
So this city is not just a place. This city is a people, people forgiven of their sin when they place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And in this city, there's a new community. It's a community of the redeemed where the only thing that matters is our common faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The book of Revelation says there will be people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every ethnic group represented there. Can I tell people who say, well, if they're going to be there, I'm not going to be there. I say, I agree with you 100%. You're not going to be there. If you want to be racist and prejudiced, enjoy it while you can. Because in heaven, we're all going to be together, all praising the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. And while we will not lose our distinctiveness, we will recognize there's only one color that matters in heaven. It's the crimson blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed on the cross that made it possible for us to even be there. And we're going to praise him forever. But can I tell you what makes heaven heaven is not just seeing my loved ones who have gone on before. What makes heaven heaven is seeing God himself. I don't care what you, how you define heaven. The basic definition of heaven is heaven is wherever God is. And John says, this voice from the throne declares, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He is a God who comes near. He created us. And what did he do in the Garden of Eden with Adam? He walked with Adam in the cool of the garden. But when sin entered the world, it broke the fellowship and the relationship between God and man, and we've lived in a broken world ever since. But God's heart's desire is still to be with his people. That's why he called the Jewish people who were no people before he made them a people. And he manifests his presence in their midst through the tabernacle. Remember everywhere they went, the tabernacle was always with them in the center of their community. They all lived around the tabernacle where God would uniquely manifest his glory to his people in the tabernacle and in the temple. And then, of course, we know because God wants to be with us, he sent Emmanuel, God with us. And it was only later in his life that John the Apostle, when he wrote his gospel, we call it the Gospel of John, looked back on his time with Jesus on this earth and he said, the word of God became flesh. He became one of us and dwelt among us. Literally, the word is tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, because God is a God who wants to be with his people. But even as a man, Jesus was limited in time and space to only be in one location at one time. And even after his resurrection, he stayed for 40 days. But then 40 days after he rose from the dead, he went back to heaven. And right now is at the right hand of God the Father, at the throne. And we live by faith, not by sight. And so often God can feel so far from us and so distant from us. And living by faith is not easy. The easiest thing I do is preach about faith. The hardest thing I do is live it. Trusting in God. And whom I've not seen. 
But this God is not distant at all. He's already promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. In those moments when he feels distant, you got to live by faith that he's still with you. And sometimes we catch those glimpses. We sense his presence in a unique way. He's always there, but sometimes we're more aware that he's there. You know what I mean by that? I mean, sometimes you're riding on the road listening to your favorite praise song, and man, glory just fills the car. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or, or you come to a church service and you, you sing a song and it just speaks to you. And in that moment, God is more real to you than ever before. Or maybe you're reading your Bible or you're hearing a sermon preached. And in that moment, it feels like this mountaintop experience and you don't want to leave. You're like Peter, James, and John at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' glory and deity was revealed to them. Peter says, let's just stay. Let's just build some tents and stay here on this mountaintop. But we, like they, have to come down from that mountaintop. And usually, we get out in traffic and God doesn't seem so near anymore. We go to work and some abrasive co-worker, God seems a long way away. And I hope he is because he don't need to hear what I'm thinking. But the beauty of heaven, the beauty of the Christian faith is not that we try to work our way to God with our good deeds. It is that our good God in grace comes down to us. And he says, I will dwell with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and we will see him face to face in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer living by faith, now we live by sight. Just hanging out with Jesus. Isn't that going to be awesome? Yeah, we'll know Peter, James, and John. Yeah, we'll know our loved ones who have gone to heaven. We'll recognize them. They'll recognize us. But heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. And he is with us. He also speaks of a new comfort in verse 4. A new comfort. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Every one of us in this room know what tears are. We know what death is. We know about mourning. We know about crying. We know about pain. What I don't know about is a world without those things. I can't comprehend it. And I cannot do it justice this morning to try to explain it to you. But here's what I will promise you. We have a Savior who not only suffered for us on the cross of Calvary, he suffered with us in this life when he became a man. Isaiah 53 says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He knows what it is to hurt. He knows what it is to, to mourn. He knows what it is to cry. He knows what it is to feel death itself because the Bible says he tasted death for every person. I can't tell you how many times, I mean hundreds of times throughout my life I've received news, a phone call or a visit. I hate to tell you, Ricky, but so-and-so has passed away. And often I've been called because they need me to conduct the funeral. I hate to tell you the bad news, but so-and-so's passed away hundreds of times. And it's heartbreaking every time. Just yesterday I attended a funeral. One of our church members' brother, my church member, who was grieving the loss of his 51-year-old brother. 
to cancer. I said, I hate cancer. I hate death. And I said, you're right. Death is the last enemy. But the Lord and Savior who suffered with us in this life and suffered for us on the cross and rose from the dead has promised he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. In this new heaven and new earth where heaven has come down to earth, there shall be no more mourning nor crying or pain anymore for the former things have, what's the phrase? Passed away. I am sick of hearing the call. Somebody I love has passed away. But one of these days, we're going to be able to say, Hey, did you hear this morning? Did you hear the news? It rang out through the universe. Today, death passed away. No more. Now, that's a funeral I'm looking forward to going to. Let's go to the funeral of death. Let's go to the funeral of crying. Let's go to the funeral of pain. Let's go to the funeral of sorrow. Those things are in the rearview mirror in this new creation made possible by Jesus. And then the new confidence. And we got to close. You didn't listen fast enough. <laughs> We're out of time. How can we be sure this promise of a new world will come true? Maybe this is just pie in the sky. And if you're a skeptic and you just don't believe this stuff, I get it. And I'm so glad you're here. Keep coming and investigate the claims of Christianity. If we make in these incredible claims, we better have some incredible reasons for them and some incredible evidence. And I think we do. But even for the Christians in the room, how do we know this will come true? We hear promises every day that aren't kept. Politicians make a lot of promises that they either can't keep or they never intended to keep in the first place. Preachers aren't any better. They'll say something like this now in closing. And then 25 minutes later, they're still talking. So a bunch of lying preachers. Our church put a red clock in the back, and I've already ignored that one already. But God's promises are an island of certainty and a sea of uncertainty. And here's the promise. Verse 5 and 6 and he who was seated on the throne, this is Jesus, seated on the throne of heaven, said, Behold, I am making all things new. <laughs> he says, Mark it down. Take my word for it. Look. Look with your eyes of faith. Don't give up right now. This isn't the end. The pain you're in, the suffering you're in, the sorrow you're in, this is not the end of the book. This may be the end of that chapter, but I'm going to write a new chapter Behold, I'm making all things new. And I think John the Apostle is so overwhelmed and staggered by the knowledge and the beauty of what he has seen about this new heaven that he's just standing there with his mouth agape. And Jesus has to say, uh, write this down. That's your job to be writing. Write this down. You're supposed to be taking notes here, John. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus says, if you can trust me with your beginning of eternal life and salvation and forgiveness of your sin, then you ought to trust me with your end because I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who was and is and always shall be. I'm the eternal son of God. And if you can trust me with your beginning and you can trust me with the end, why don't you trust me in the meantime? Amen? I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning 
and the end. And then he promises, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Maybe you're saying for the first time in your life, I want in on this. I'm hearing about heaven. I believe it's true. How do I get this? What do I do? How do I pay for it? What do I work for? And Jesus says, put your wallet back in your pocket. Put down your checkbook. Put down your debit card. Quit trying to work your way to heaven. I'll give it to you, the water of eternal life that will refresh you now and forever without payment. It's free. And how can it be free to you? Because it cost him everything when he died on the cross for your sin and he rose from the dead. And that's why I believe this vision of heaven is real because he died like he said he would and he rose from the third day, from the grave on the third day like he said he would. And if he can do that, I'll believe anything else he says. I'm going to take him at his word, and I'm going to trust him. The bottom line is, for all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, heaven is not a dream, it is our destiny. Be comforted by that, Christian, and come to faith in Christ. Sir, ma'am, young person, if you've never intentionally, personally trusted Christ, for yourself. In fact, maybe today in this prayer, you'll trust him as your Lord and Savior right now. Let's pray together. Your head bowed, your eyes closed. Let's just pray. This is the most important time of this whole service right here, right now, where you do business with God. Sir, ma'am, do you need Jesus? Young person, do you need Jesus as your Savior? Trust him right now. Say, dear God, I admit to you I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me in spite of my sin. And I believe you want to be with me now and forever. So you sent your son Jesus to die for me on the cross. He took my punishment for all the wrong I've done. He paid the price so heaven could be my home. And so today I confess I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. And I confess I'm placing my trust today in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for promising but if I would believe in you, I would not perish in my sin. But instead, I would have the gift of eternal life. I trust in you and I believe you. Now, friend, with your head bowed, your eyes closed, if you prayed to receive Jesus as your Savior, welcome to the family of God. Based on the authority of Jesus, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God bless you. Tell somebody around you you're glad to see them today.